Hear the word of God from Romans chapter 3, beginning at verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For I have already charged that all men, both Jews and Greeks, are under the power of sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have gone wrong. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For no human being will be justified in his sight by works of the law, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as an expiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to prove at the present time that he himself is righteous and that he justifies him who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On the principle of works? No, but on the principle of faith. For we hold that a man is justified by faith, apart from works of law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. And he will justify the circumcised on the ground of their faith? and the uncircumcised through their faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. All of us rejoiced in the sight of the faces of men and women confessing Christ and becoming part of this part of his kingdom. What is the background of this scene that we have beheld? What does it all mean? Is it isolated from their daily work and homes? Or is this gospel that they have professed here publicly 
Is this gospel basic to their life? Is it basic to your life? Or is it an extra, something not vital and essential, elemental to your being? That's part of what Romans 3 means. This is the fulcrum of the whole book of Romans. Here the weight shifts. Here is the point of greatest pressure and greatest importance in all the book. James Denny, that great commentator in the Expositor's Testament, sums up this passage in these classic words, where he says, God brings what is needed to all men, the righteousness of God, and he brings it in such a way that it is accessible to all men. May we borrow that as a theme for this chapter. God brings what is needed to all men, a righteousness of God. And he brings it in such a way to make it accessible to all men. Now this chapter deals with two great themes. The first, the native spiritual condition of man. And the second, the righteous character of God. And then it closes in verses 27 to 31 with three inferences drawn from this passage about the native spiritual condition of man and the righteous character of God. Starting then with this native spiritual condition at verse 9. It would be better not to use the word Jews there, since it's not in the original, are we any better off? Meaning all of us. He's including everyone here. And he's charging that the native spiritual condition of all men is that we are under the empire of sin. And what strikes you as you read this is the universality of it. There is none righteous. No, not one. There is a subsuming of everyone under the category of sin. The Bible has many words for sin. Just to translate a few of them, they would sound like this. Missing the mark. Transgressing the boundary. Falling when you should be standing. Being ignorant of something you ought to know. Diminishing that which should be given in full measure. Disobeying a voice. Disregarding a commandment. Being willfully careless. Those are just eight of the Bible words for sin. But what is so striking here is that reaching back to Psalm 14, the, the, the apostle by the power of the Holy Spirit draws us all under the power of sin in our native spiritual condition. And then he sums it up in verse 23 where he says, there's no distinction since all have sinned 
and come short of the glory of God. Now that word all have sinned is the aorist tense, that is punctiliar action, definite action in past time. All have sinned. Not that all were created this way, no. There was a time of innocence and glory and perfect communion with God, but then there came a moment in the life of the race and of every person, a historic occurrence. All have sinned, a point in time, and then the abiding consequence. And therefore all fall short of the glory of God. The idea is that the glory which a man or a woman ought to have is the commendation and approval of God upon the life. But there is not a soul in his native spiritual condition who has the approval of God upon him. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now the apostle, like a good preacher, illustrates what he means. He does it with the organs of speech. Here they are. He says, the throat meant to warble praises to God is an open sepulcher with ugly fumes devouring human life. The tongue meant to be the feeder of many in wisdom and righteousness is a flatterer and a deceiver. The lips meant to be sweet with the honey of the word of God and edification is poisonous. The mouth, which is meant to be a veritable fountain of glory and help to others, is full of curses and bitterness. Then he goes to the feet. Those which were meant to run in the ways of God's commandments run instead to ruin and misery and do not know the way of peace. Now, these are not the sins of every man, but they can become so. It is only the restraint of God over a human life that keeps all our lives from being characterized this way. That is, in the native spiritual condition of the human heart, there is the latent possibility of all of these gross and hideous evils. It only would require the right circumstances and the removal of God's restraining hand for your mouth and mine to be described in these ugly and awful words. Such is our native spiritual condition. And the reason the root is, there's no fear of God before their eyes. In other words, the, the basic cause of it all is that we have rebelled against God. We no longer fear Him or His commandments. And losing his knowledge and his communion, our natural element has become our own iniquity. And we move in it and we love it. We are sick people who do not want a remedy. And we would continue in our own sin. We would go on unless some power outside ourselves stops us. What is our native spiritual condition? It is not only public sinning but private 
It is not only what we do that we ought not to do, but the things we leave undone that we ought to be doing. It is not only what we do, but more basically what we are. That's the native spiritual condition of the human heart. Dead, says Ephesians chapter 2, the same apostle writing, dead in trespasses and sins. Oh, you say, that's, that's an awful description. I didn't come to church to hear about how sinful I am. But I say to you that any conscience that has been awakened to the holiness of God would find this description very apt to his own comparison of his own evil heart with the righteous character of God. And the passage goes on to say that it is the law that indicts us in our sins. The law of God, whether written on the heart in conscience or written in the book of the word, the law of God is like a plow that is meant to create a furrow across the human heart and open up its inner contents of ugliness and sin. The law was meant to convince us of our sin, never meant to give life, but to convince us of our sin and cause us to cry out to God, for another way of righteousness. It is the law itself that stands against us. You say, I don't understand that. I ask you to do these three things about your heart. Look at your heart under the microscope of the law of God. That is the law in its spiritual extensiveness. Examine your heart through that microscope and see its hellish, devilish, and evil character. Or study your own heart, especially in time of temptation. Or call upon God and ask Him to make clear to you how your heart stands in relation to the holiness of God. And some of you are saying, I never, that I know of, have broken those laws of God. I know I'm not all that I ought to be. Are you looking at the last table of God's law? Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, and so on. You haven't done those things? When Jesus was asked, what is the great commandment, he said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and mind and soul and strength. Have you loved God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength? Have you withheld from him that devotion for which he created you and that love that he wants from you? If you have, you've broken the law of God and it indicts you. If the law of God then indicts us as sinners, how can it justify us? It cannot do both. That's the point here. No human being will be justified in his sight by works of the law, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. In other words, the law has called for us to love God, but we do not have within us the love which we can respond with. And therefore the law indicts us and can never be the means 
of our standing righteous before God. It is utterly impossible. And therefore the apostle writing under the Spirit summarizes the native spiritual condition of man in a picture. And the picture is that the small and the great stand before the judge of God. And the books are opened and the records revealed. And opportunity is given to every man to bring forward an answer to his charges. To justify himself in the light of the demands of the law of a righteous and holy God. You see it here in verse 19. Every mouth is stopped and the whole world is found guilty before God. In that moment when opportunity is given to answer the charges, not a soul will be able to step forward and say, I was justified in my sin. Not a soul, every mouth stopped and the whole world guilty before God. Now that's the estimate of the Apostle Paul, divinely inspired and writing, the dismal picture of our native spiritual condition. How dark it is. Then in verse 21, the light breaks forth. And here is the blessedness of chapter 3. Those first two words, take those with you today if you don't take anything else. Savor those two words, two little words, three letters each. Oh, you think you could throw them away. No, here they are. But now, there's the pivot of the whole book of Romans. But now, after this dismal and despairing picture, of the human condition is painted, but now God's righteous character is unfolded. And we see that there is a righteousness which is revealed. It's a new righteousness, seemingly at least new to us, newly manifested. It is a righteousness that is entirely different and separate from the statutes of God, whether written on the conscience or in the scripture. It is a righteousness apart from law. New in that it is newly manifested, but not new really, because the Old Testament prophets and poets, like Jeremiah, sang about it. I will put my law in your heart. And everyone shall say, know the Lord. It will no longer be necessary for every man to teach his neighbor. Each man will himself know the Lord. Ah, this righteousness of God is revealed by the prophets and the law. It's apart from law altogether. It is on the basis of faith. And there's the beauty of it in verse 22. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. God has put the basis of this righteousness, which he will give 
which he will unfold no longer on the works of the law, but now wholly upon the basis of faith in Jesus Christ. This is God's prerogative. It is he who can establish the ground of faith and who does just that. And now that the righteousness of God is unfolded and manifested, it is possible for a person to be justified. In the original language, this word justification and the word righteousness are very close. And so since the righteousness of God is made available to men, men now can receive this righteousness and be just before God. What is justification? Justification is God pronouncing a man just and treating him accordingly. Because the demands of the law have been satisfied concerning him. Justification is God not making a man just, but pronouncing him just and treating him accordingly because the demands of the law have been satisfied concerning him. And this justification, which we read here about, is by grace freely. Now this is a most marvelous thing. Grace means the loving favor of God that is apart from any personal efforts or deserving of ours. Grace means that deep within the heart of God in the mystery of all eternity, out of his own love and for his own purposes and reasons, he chose to set himself upon his own people, set his love there. That's free grace. That's amazing grace. We cannot fathom it. We can only sing it. We cannot measure it. We can only revel in it. It is the grace of God that has made justification possible. Freely. When he says freely, he means that it is completely apart from every human effort. That no merit of a person in any sense contributes to justification but that it is wholly and freely a gift of God set upon the person. How glorious that is in verse 24. Justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Redemption means the giving of a ransom in order to secure deliverance from guilt and punishment power of sin. And God has secured redemption through making his son an expiation or propitiation for our sins. The better word is propitiation. The reason being that what this word means is that Jesus Christ is appointed by God before the intelligent universe set out there designated to be the one who would himself remove God's wrath from man. He would appease the righteous anger of God, taking that anger and wrath upon himself and bearing it wholly himself, propitiating God, not changing man, but 
reconciling God to us, for it is he who was offended and who is satisfied in the propitiation of our Lord Jesus Christ. The price of that wrath removing is the very blood of Jesus Christ. You ask, does God take man's sin seriously? The immeasurable worth of the blood of Christ is the indication of how very deeply God regards your sin and mine, deep as the blood of his own Son. All this to be received by faith. The point, of course, is that the justification which a person can have before God is not automatic. It is not given en masse, but it is received by faith. Christ is only the justifier of those who believe. God has fixed the ground of salvation, the instrument of salvation, to be faith itself. He is utterly pleased when someone brings faith to him and exercises faith in his son. And pleased in that, he does his justifying and gracious work. Now can you see how the character of God here is fully vindicated and harmonized for us? Remember, this second part of the message is the righteous character of God. And if one were to have looked at the universe in its history from creation, you might have been tempted to say that God's patience was really tolerance and that his divine judgment was asleep because for centuries men sinned against him rebelled against him, and with only occasional exceptions of divine judgment, there was no sign of God's wrath upon men. So much so that in Psalm 50, verse 21, we read, Thou thoughtest that I was a man like thyself, and that I would be silent. But now, when Christ bore the weight of the world's sin, the righteousness of God was vindicated, because he bore the weight not only of his contemporary sin and of us who would follow after him, but he bore the weight of the sin of human history. All believers who had looked toward the cross were justified in the sacrifice of Christ. His redeeming work reached not only forward but backward and brought together the ends of the ages and in the center stands the great Redeemer vindicating the righteousness of God who in forbearance and patience had waited for the outpouring of his wrath until his own son could bear it. Oh, what a glorious harmony it is. The harmony of God light and God love, both in 1 John God is light, that is, there is complete holiness and righteousness in him. He cannot abide iniquity. God is love. He would reach out and embrace everyone who would come to him by faith. How can these two be reconciled? And here it is. He is not only just, 
that is light, but he is the justifier of those who believe, that is love. And these divine attributes are harmonized and blended in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ so that we can say mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That paragraph at verse 26 concludes again with that same theme that keeps ringing through this third chapter. He justifies him who has faith in Jesus. This faith that is continually called for is not general faith. Oh, just have some kind of vague faith and that will pass muster. No, no, no. Faith in a very specific person, Jesus Christ. Faith who, which has as its object the divine Savior that knows that he is the Son of God, that he laid down his life as a ransom for many, that he very much wants and longs for me to be his and to walk with him. That kind of specific faith is saving faith. That's what Jesus called for, you remember, in his earthly life. He kept asking for belief, not in general, but he said, believe that I am he. Believe in me, you believe in God, believe in me. Specific faith, pointed, directed, lodged in him, is saving faith. Ah, we've seen then the native spiritual condition of man. Every person under the domain of sin, unable to be justified by the law or by himself. And we've seen the righteous character of God ready not only to vindicate his justice, but to extend his mercy to all who repent and believe. Where can boasting belong? Boasting means self-congratulation, human merit, it means I contributed to my salvation. Where is boasting? It is excluded. You cannot have boasting and believing in the same person. These two things do not coexist in the believer. Either you are boasting, that is, trusting in your own merit and in your own righteousness, or you're believing, which is to rest wholly, renouncing yourself and resting wholly upon Jesus Christ. Lest anyone, by any devilish stretch of his uncanny work, should think yourself an exception, the passage closes with the universal statement, there is one God. And if there is one God, there cannot be two ways of salvation, or ten, or a thousand. One way home, that's all. He is the God of Jews and Gentiles. There is one God, and therefore he justifies in one way. There's only one way home. It's the way of the cross. You cannot develop another way. You can't wait for another preacher to come who may have some other less demanding way to come to Christ. There is no other way. There is one God. The best of men must come this way.
and the worst of men need only come this way. The universal religion of the human family is the redemption wrought in Jesus Christ. And lest anybody should fall into that other pitfall of Satan here, the chapter closes to say, is the law then made void? Is the law now abrogated and gone? As if somehow now believing that by resting in Christ by faith alone, I have a license now to live any way I want. Apart from the law, it has no relevance to me any longer. No, he said, by no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. For every soul who having been washed in the blood of Christ, and made new, have a divine nature imparted into his soul. Every soul with that new nature longs to keep the law of God. He wants to take that commandment list and begin to make it sing in daily life. We uphold the law. The only one who can fulfill the righteous demands of the law is a believer in our Lord Jesus Christ, animated by the Holy Spirit filled with a desire for the glory of God. He upholds the law of God as it was meant to be upheld. William Cooper despaired of life one day. As he walked past a table, his Bible lay open to Romans 3. And he wrote, on reading it, I immediately received power to believe. The rays of the sun of righteousness fell on me in all their fullness. I saw the complete sufficiency of the expiation which Christ had wrought for my pardon and entire justification. In an instant, I believed and received the peace of the gospel. William Cooper went on to write the hymns which we have come to love so deeply. Romans 3 was a pivotal point for him. It's pivotal in the book. It's pivotal in my ministry. It is pivotal for you. It is the turning point away from your own righteousness to trusting in the righteousness of Christ given for you. I say I'm not a sinner. And I say to you, the greatest arrogance of the human heart is not to desire this justification. Whoever does not desire this is sinning against heaven. You don't care to have it. That is the height of human pride. For Christ has been set before you in all his priestly and suffering offices he has been offered to you. And you've said, no, thank you. That is the height of arrogance. And for that alone, you must repent in brokenness and faith. Let us pray. Gracious and mighty God, who has set before us so marvelous a means of being righteous before thee. We thank thee. 
Oh God, forgive every rationalization which removes us from the convicting power of the Spirit to repent. Dig a furrow in our hearts. Break up the fallow ground and give us a new heart. A heart of flesh and not of stone to believe and to follow. In the name of Christ our Savior,